Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 6, produced 27 July, 2015. I'm a native Texan. I was born and raised in the city of Beaumont. It's part of the Golden Triangle, comprised of the cities of Beaumont, Port Arthur, and Orange. Located in southeast Texas along the Gulf Coast, it's very near to the Sabine River and the border with Louisiana. Given the region's rich wetlands, alligators were not uncommon, and as a child growing up there, one quickly learns a unique alliteration for saying goodbye to a friend. It goes like this, see you later, alligator, to which the reply is, after a while, crocodile. Now, much later in life, and with my gaze firmly fixed toward Scotland, you can imagine my surprise when I encountered a children's book titled Later, Tartan Gator. In a moment, we'll meet the Glasgow-born author of this engaging book and learn about its story and hers as well. Here in Scotland, 2015 is the year of food and drink, a celebration of the country's outstanding natural larder and produce. From artisan cheeses and world-renowned whiskies to succulent seasonal berries and arbroath smokies, there's an abundance of delicious regional flavours round every corner. Discover the landscapes, people and culture that make our food heritage so unique and enjoy a feast of events and festivals throughout the year. Come and experience a true taste of Scotland. Later Tartan Gator is an under-sevens children's book that brings together the unique cultures of Scotland and Nolans through an unscheduled feeding of haggis. Now that's New Orleans to those of you from other parts of the world. Here's a snippet of a reading of the book to a group of children. Alligators love when people stop by and talk to him for a while and then say goodbye. And although he's quite a serious-looking alligator, he smiles when people say to him, Later, Gator! Can you guys say that? Later, Gator! Good job! Some people were passing and ignored the sign do not feed the animals at any time. They fed him some haggis. They were Scottish, you see, but what they did was very wrong, if you ask me. Gator enjoyed the haggis very much indeed. He wished for some more of the yummy, spicy feed. Belly full and happy, he went for a little snooze, but when he woke up, he was in for the balloon. He couldn't believe what his eyes Seen. As he looked down at his feet, it was quite disagreeing. At first he thought that it was just a very bad dream, but it wasn't. It was real, and it nearly made him scream. Looking down, it was plain to see his two tartan feet of green, gold, and purple. It was really quite neat. That reading took place at the Tartan Festival at Scotland Farms in Minden, Louisiana. It's the annual festival of the Scottish Society of the Louisiana Highlands, of which I'm honored to be vice president. The reading and the book went over quite a success, as you can well imagine. Joining me under the tartan sky 
is Glasgow native, now air resident, and author Lorraine Johnston, here to talk with us about her book and the considerable story behind it. Um, basically, it's about an alligator in a zoo, and there are signs everywhere saying do not feed the animals at any time. And a Scottish family come along, and as we do from time to time, I think we do have a reputation of this, um, they don't do as they're told, and they toss the, the gator um, a lovely haggis. The gator enjoys this very much indeed, goes for a snooze, and when he wakes up, he's tartan. And the rest of the story is how the alligator gets back to his normal, everyday alligator green. Well, we don't want to do any spoilers so that those who buy the book can wait and, and see the surprise at the end. It's all set, of course, here in the United States, in uh, New Orleans, or as it's known in the state where I live here, Louisiana, Nolens. So what was the inspiration? How does how does a Scottish writer come out with a story that's, that's uh, centered in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana? Well, I was a children's nanny many, many years ago for 13 years, and I was a nanny in Scotland. But the last family I looked after were from New Orleans and they were over in Scotland for three and a half years. And through them, I fell in love with stories of New Orleans and kind of wished that one day I would end up going there and visiting. And when their trip, or not their trip, but their stay in in Scotland ended and they had to return home, um, I offered my services to help them. (laughs) So we packed up the children and and all the bits and bobs and um, I helped them on their moving day and went over for 10 days. And it was just amazing. I can't tell you from the minute I got off the plane and into New Orleans and smelled the smells and heard the jazz and soaked up the atmosphere, I just fell in love. And that was quite a long time ago. And I've actually been to New Orleans 10 times over the last 20 years. And I would call it my home from home, I have to say. Okay. A nanny and now a children's book author. Neither of those were really what you set out to be in your career. Is that correct? It is correct. Um, Although I have to say, I probably haven't had a very unusual start in in my life, uh, my working life, because I started out as a writing instructress for a few years. Um... Then I was a children's nanny and then I went into social care. And after working in social care for three and a half years and being a children's nanny for 13, everyone throughout those years were telling me what a health and safety pain in the backside I was. So there was a light bulb moment. Um, I went back to college and university and I retrained and became a health and safety advisor. And I did that for quite a few years and absolutely loved it. Um and that was before writing. So I would say that my, my proper grown-up career was in health and safety. And so what led you down the road to becoming uh, what hopefully now will be a very successful children's book author? Perhaps quite an unusual route. Um, when I was 40 years old, I had quite an unwelcome and an unexpected 40th birthday present. Um, I started off in the morning with an eye twitch. And later on in the day, I had a strange sensation down my left cheek. And then it became very strong um, and ended up being down the left-hand side of my face. So by the time I was having my birthday dinner um, in the evening, I knew something neurological was was wrong. And it took a few days before we went back home. We were actually um, on vacation in Mallorca. And when we got back home, I went to the doctor and then the hospital and we got some tests done. And unfortunately, it was multiple sclerosis. So it's quite a long story. So I'll keep it very short here. 
when anybody gets a critical illness um, of any sort or anything happens which is really so grounding and devastating really it makes you rethink everything and it makes you stop it makes you pause it makes you edit a lot of things and basically it was very very difficult to continue in my career in health and safety and writing came through a very strange set of circumstances where all my friends were rallying around and visiting and taking me out for lunch and trying to cheer me up and two friends over two separate days you know, come and visited and said, how are you? And I was like, you know, well, not so great. And I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I'm a bit down. And and the first friend said, well, I think you should start writing. And the way that I received that information was like they were patting me on the head and saying, you might as well take up knitting. So I kind of let it slide. I knew they were coming from a kind place. And, and I just got on with the normal sort of lunchtime friendship uh, conversations that go on between two lassies and two days later a second friend and I were out to lunch and it's the same old questions that I was being asked you know so how are you very sympathetic coming from a lovely place but I was getting fed up answering the same questions and she said you know after I said I was I was fed up and all the rest of it she said you know Lorraine she looked at me straight and I said you should write for children and I said, what is going on? This is twice in two days, you know, people have said this. And she reminded me that when I was a children's nanny, I used to make up stories and, and make not only the children laugh, but um, the grown-ups too. And I kind of replied with that, well, you know, that's your job when you're a nanny. And she went, no, 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 no. It may have been your job, but you were actually very good at telling stories. Have a think about it. So the lunch wrapped up. And as I drove home, I really did think about it. And it took a couple of days for me to kind of think, do you know what? I'm going to give this a bash. And a bash I did. And that was in October 2011. And so is it fair then to say that had it not been for the misfortune of MS, you might never have ventured into being a writer? You likely would have remained in the occupational safety and health area. Absolutely. I, I know you can never sort of tell with absolute doubt how your life would pan out. But I feel that I, I can tell you with absolute doubt that I was gloriously happy updating health and safety policies and doing inspections and delivering training. And I was extremely busy. I, I loved my job. I was a very, very busy career woman traveling up and down the country um, for the company that I worked for. And I don't have much to thank multiple sclerosis for, but I do have two things. And and one is time. I have much more time now. I have no choice about this, but having MS allows me to sit and stop and think. And it also makes you kind of edit what the important things in life are. So that's one of the things that I have to say I've, I've learned to be grateful for MS for showing me. And the second thing is that I've discovered writing. Um, but the, before the writing, what I learned was that when you slow down and you have a think and you have an edit, knowing absolutely nothing about something is a gift because you don't have everybody telling you, oh, this is really hard to, to achieve. You don't have the proven track record or failure record that this is a really difficult thing you're trying to achieve. It was a nugget of an idea and I knew nothing. And therefore, I knew I would achieve it. And I did. It took a year, 
but I really attacked it in a way that was fresh. I'd never never attacked anything in my life that was new in the way that I had after having MS. It's interesting to hear you talk about that this process because I've been a writer most of my life. I started writing really in high school and college and got into broadcasting and radio and television, but I always I was a news writer basically. And I always had a dream though of being a freelance writer and and having the the cottage in the in the mountains and the fire and a wee dram on the table and writing about whatever I chose to write about. Share with us a little bit about that process. So you, you've you've accepted to the extent that you can MS. You've decided I am going to explore writing. What did you do then, and and how did that process develop and pan out? How were you accepted when you decided to tell people I'm going to be a writer? Well, I would like you to imagine for just a few minutes the professional career woman that was working long hours that loved it. Um, that by the way, I was also a wife and um, a mum, and I was a volunteer first aid officer doing uh, public duties for big events, public events like Tea in the Park, for instance. I was busy, and I loved being busy. So this lesson of learning about time and having a think about what you want to do, then followed up by the two friends who said about writing. With that time, I know there's a bit of repetition here, but with that time, It allowed me to think back to when I was a nanny. And being a nanny was a wonderful job. It comes with huge responsibilities. Children are the most precious things in the world. But what it also comes with is huge amounts of fun, endless hours of giggles, full of nonsense, hide and seek, making up things, changing stories, ever-evolving just silliness. And at the point when I started writing, I tapped back into that And it's so freeing to not have the corporate world, to not have the long working hours. Now, don't get me wrong, not in the beginning. I was very bitter. I was mourning my career. Um, I was angry. But once you get over that, and I I think there's no shortcut to that. I think you have to go through, through those stages. But once you get over that, it is such fun to be a children's writer. And I can basically be a child in my head and make up ridiculous stories and write them down. And if they're successful, they're successful. But I'm having great fun doing this. But how I started was, first of all, I got the bee in my bonnet. Right, well, I was thinking about it. Perhaps they had something in this. And then I decided, right, I'm, I'm going to start to write. and I'll give this a bash. So within a couple of days, I had joined a writing um, club locally. I had immersed myself in as many writing things as I could. And over the last few years, I have been involved with wonderful organisations, organisations like the Scottish Association of Writers, Ouija Wednesday, which is a literary networking organisation, the Writers' Umbrella. I attended Swanwick Writers' School. Um, I belonged to Largs Writing Group. I just immersed myself and I learned so much. I attended every group meeting. I applied for every competition. I entered every competition for every genre. I turned up for every single thing, even if I knew I I probably wouldn't like it. And I treated it like going to college for a year. But the thing is that just a couple of months after starting to write, so around about January 2012, I had decided, do you know what? I am going to become a children's writer. And I just did it. I, I can't. I can't express enough that this huge lesson that if you know nothing and you want to obtain it, you can, 
is so freeing. And therefore, it really is just a, a case of I decided I was going to do it and I did all the homework as to how, how to make it happen. And I hope what you're saying is true, because as you know, I've done sort of the same thing. I went out and told the world I'm going to move to Scotland and had no idea how naive a statement that was. I was just about to say, I truly do believe. I mean, if I said to you, Glenn, I want to become a ballet dancer, well, that there's just no way in hell that's ever, ever, ever going to happen. And I accept that. But if you think of something that is truly achievable and manageable and doesn't even have to be bite-sized. It might be a huge meal of, a, of an achievement. There are steps to make it happen. And I think that the biggest thing in people's way of achieving their dreams is thinking they can't make it. I would agree with you. You have to be realistic in your dreams. But I believe that, that moving to and living in Scotland is a dream that I can achieve. And, and I work toward it. To get back to the book then, how long did it take for you to chase the dream of this is what I'm going to do, you're taking a bash at it, you now have a manuscript in hand and now you've got to get, it's not a book until somebody agrees to, to buy it and publish it. Well, let's go back just a little bit. Um, the the friends that suggested that I write, especially the second friend that su- suggested it on day two, on that second lunch, reminded me of my ability to tell stories to children. The story wasn't one that had been told previously to children. The The story of later Tartan Gator came about in a, in a very strange way, which is actually quite par for the course in my life. Things are never where they seem to, you know, where you think they would come from. They come in unexpected ways. Once I decided that I would be a children's writer and I'd immerse myself in the writing world, I very, very quickly started submitting manuscripts over here to UK publishers. And I got 49 rejections. Now, just to give you an idea of, remember my point about, you know, it's it's blessed to be unaware of how hard it is to achieve something. Well, I was blissfully unaware that I wasn't really sending very good manuscripts. I wasn't really conforming to the British way of sending in a, a manuscript for a children's book. Um, so I, I was just never going to get a yes. But for every rejection I got, I got a little bit of knowledge. Somebody would say something that would give me a hint. Oh, I got that one wrong. I need to change my letter or I need to change my approach. So it was a learning process. But when number 49 came in, I just got it in my head that day. I thought, you know what? I'll stick this rejection in the rejection folder on my Outlook. And that's how I knew it was number 49. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to wait for number 50. Now, roll forward a few hours and I was on the phone from Scotland to my friend Jan in New Orleans and I was sort of having a woe is me conversation. You know, my health's not great. I'm not particularly happy. This is frustrating. And we had a good chat and she, you know, gave me a a metaphorical boot in the the behind and sort of bolstered me up and cheered me up. And then we we spoke about the kids and we had a catch up. And then for the first time ever, now, can I just say, Jan used to always say to me, later, Gator, or catch you later, Gator. So I was very used to hearing her sign off a phone call or, or indeed face-to-face like that. So for the first time ever, from absolutely goodness knows where, she said, OK, chin up, catch you later, Tartan Gator. And I went, what? And she said, catch you later, I've got to run. And she, she said, bye, and hung up. And I thought, she said, later, Tartan Gator. And the, the story 
flooded in my head, I swear, in like two minutes. And I jotted it down, you know, oh, all right, an alligator. Oh, it, it must be an alligator in a New Orleans zoo. Oh, it could be in, in Audubon. And the Scottish family will come along and they'll they'll feed it some haggis. And I don't know how it's going to turn tartan, but it's going to turn tartan. And I was jotting all this down. And that's how Later Tartan Gator um, actually came about. And it infuses Scotland right in the heart of the story, right in the title. But that's where it came from, just on the side of that phone call. So 49 rejections, and um, you didn't want to wait for 50. And the book, in fact, was picked up by a U.S. publisher, not a U.K. publisher. Well, it wasn't picked up. And here's where my... um, I'm going to use the word manipulation, and I'll get back to that in a second. I think everyone thinks the word manipulation is a negative thing. But bear in mind that my previous career before this, before having a bash at writing, I was a health and safety advisor. I delivered health and safety training. Um, I would be the one that would come and do audits and inspections. And now I was writing for kids. It's a huge, huge, huge difference. But when I got 49 rejections, and again, I'm, I'm sort of bird walking here and I'm going backwards and forwards, so apologies. But 49 rejections is nothing but in my state of mind at that point. And my goal being so vivid in my imagination, you know, and, and within grasp, you know, I just wasn't going to wait for number 50. So when the conversation with Jan happened and she said, you know, all right, I've got to run, got an errand to do, catch you later, tartan gator. I thought, oh, this story, jotted it down. I then actually had um, uh, a week away at Swanwick Writing School. And I could not get the story out of my head. It was to the point that I almost wasn't enjoying the writing week, the residential writing school, because I couldn't wait to get back home and polish off the the manuscript. Um, But when I came home, I did polish off the manuscript. I did edit it. And I used my skills in health and safety and in manipulation to try and make it a yes. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Instead of just being a generic zoo, I was very firm that I wanted it in Audubon Zoo. So I wrote an email and explained that I was writing a a story for under sevens, a picture book. I I gave them a loose synopsis of what the story would be like, what it was about. And I asked them if I could use Audubon Zoo as the, the, the location of my book. And they came back with yes. So there's the permission to do that. The next thing I thought, I need to wrap this story up and find the solution as to how he gets back to his alligator green. And I'm not going to give any spoilers. But again, I immediately thought of the Blue Frog Chocolate Shop. may not sound obvious to someone who hasn't read the book, but it will be become clear. <laughs> um, so I wrote to the Blue Frog Chocolate Shop uh, owners, and I, I phoned them, and I spoke to Anne and Rick, and I, I asked the same. And they said, sure, we'd, we'd be honoured. Uh, of course you can. So there was my permission to do that. I had thought about the tartan and I wanted to use the the colours from Mardi Gras. So I created a Mardi Gras tartan of the purple, gold and green. And again, that was so that subliminally anybody from Louisiana area would instantly, hopefully, like the tartan. They may not know why. Um, and actually, the colours, I think, go extremely well together anyway. And of course, it's not a true tartan. It was also important to me, and and again, this is a learning point when you have a critical illness. You can often feel useless. You're not giving back to society in the way that you used to do. You're not going and earning a good day's work. You know, you're not producing anything for your family. That's, That's how I felt. 
And so it was important for me that um, a donation of every book sold would go to a local charity in New Orleans. So after speaking to some friends in New Orleans, we decided that St. Thomas um, Health Community Centre would be the chosen charity um, or non-profit. So that's something else that um, helped the publisher to say yes. So we've now got a book that's got a story which you don't need to know all the local knowledge to get the story. For under sevens, it sits well anywhere. If you speak English, um, it's it's fine. We've got um, a tartan that subliminally is going to be recognised and hopefully loved by everybody Louisiana. You've got a donation going to a local charity. There was fleur-de-lis embroidered into the illustrations of the book. And you've got a local business, uh, the Blue Frog Chocolate Shop, that's helping out. It's offering the solution uh, at the end of the story. Um, it's based in Audubon Zoo. And, of course, Audubon Zoo is one of the, it's always listed in Fromners as one of the top 10 places to take children. So that places the book in the Blue Frog Chocolate Shop. It places the book in the Audubon Zoo, the aquarium, the insectarian. So... I actually researched publishers and picked mascot and contacted them. And again, I didn't stick to the rules. My approach to them was awful from a business sense because I went onto their um, website and I don't know the, the technical term for it, but see when you, you click that contact us and you get that little small field, that little box to type in. I basically said, hi, my name's Lorraine Johnston. I'm a Scottish children's writer, and I'd like to um, ask if you'd like to see my manuscript about an alligator that gets fed some haggis and turns tartan. Cheers. And again, that's where not knowing what the proper procedure is is actually very freeing because you just go ahead and you do it and see what happens. Um, but I was very lucky that Mascot Books was extremely interested in it, and we had some Skype meetings and had some backwards and forwards discussions and a contract was signed. And so I started writing in October 2011. And just circumstantially, it was October 2012 that I got the first publishing deal for Later Tartan Gator with Mascot. As an author, how much control do you have over the final process, uh, the final the final book itself? Because there's a collaboration that has to happen, especially, I would think, as a, as a new author, uh, between the writer, yourself, the publisher, and there was an illustrator involved, clearly, in, uh, in your book. So how does that collaboration and, and how does that team come together? Mascot were absolutely wonderful to deal with. Um, the process from getting the, the, the book deal, if you like, in October 2012. And the book was actually first released in April 2013. So you're looking at a five, six-month turnaround. And in that time, you're, you're looking at the editing, the layout, the proofing, and the illustration process. Now, I actually wanted to be very much in control of the illustrations for a couple of reasons. One, because I had absolute audacity and cheek. I, I really wasn't conforming to all the normal rules, but I seem to have got away with it, I think. Um, so I was heavily involved in, I would say, the suggestions and design of, of what should be on each page and how it should look. But Mascot showed me some work from various um, illustrators and they said, do you like this one? Do you like this one? And whilst all the illustrators they showed me were absolutely wonderful, some 
I would see and I'd think, oh, it's very fairy-like and it looks to me like little girls' books. And I know I perhaps shouldn't say that, but that was my thoughts. I could see that in a, in a kind of fairy tale kind of story for little girls. Um, other ones would be maybe a little bit too cartoony for what I thought I wanted for a later Tartan Gator. And then we, we saw some other fabulous ones. And then I saw Preston Acevedo's uh, <laughs> just amazing illustrations. And see, when I saw his work, I seriously thought, oh, my goodness. Imagine that I can actually have this illustrator illustrate my book. And I was so excited. So I, I told um, Mascot I would be absolutely amazed if if this can work out with Preston. And, of course, the, the mascot um, team got in touch, did the liaison bit. And apparently Preston wanted to illustrate my book as well, so it was all great. So there was this stage where, for a few months, um, there would be first sketches and they'd be sent. And the first thing we did was sort out the characters. So it was the Scottish family, um, the little heroine of, um, of the book. And then you've got the, the alligator, who's the main character, obviously. And then once they were approved with some changes, we, we got a couple of colours. Uh, and once they were approved, then Preston went away and, and there was a wee bit more of a gap before I saw the next stages. And I have to tell you, it was very exciting and frustrating. But in actual fact, it was very quick. But you see, this is again, going back, and I apologise if it's repetition, but it was just um, naivety, uh, not understanding how long these things take. But I'm just so, so, so delighted with both the way the book looks, how it's illustrated, and the quality of of the printing, I, I'm I'm chuffed to bits with the actual book itself. When I, when my first box of books arrived here in Scotland for me to see and give out to friends, I was just over the moon. I was delighted. When you're going through this this process with the the publisher and the illustrator, were the illustrators from a stable of people that the publisher provided? Were you going out and seeking and finding uh, individual uh, freelance illustrators? I believe Mascot have quite a a large bank of illustrators that have previously done work for them before. So I am reading between the lines here and making a a kind of guesstimate guess here that they were sending me samples of people that they'd already done some work with. One of the things I was quite bossy and possibly cheeky, I'm not quite sure, I, I hope I delivered it in a very polite way, was I was extremely keen, if not adamant, that my illustrator was from New Orleans. I wanted he or she to know what the smells were, the sights were, the music. I wanted that to come through. That's interesting to me because uh, my question would be, was there ever a concern that you were making, and and in a sense, as you said, being cheeky or adamant, forcing the book into too narrow a niche, giving it too much of a Louisiana identity so that it wouldn't be a mass seller? Was, Was that ever a discussion that took place between you and the publisher? It wasn't, actually. Um, In some ways, having a niche market is very good because you will capture that audience, and that's its unique selling point. Uh, Later Tartan Gators is the only tartan alligator in the the world so far. I love New Orleans. New Orleans is my home from home. Glasgow is my first love, and New Orleans is my second. And I I felt so strongly about the illustrator being from New Orleans because I thought that was a really good collaboration me being Scottish and writing the story and the illustrator being you know New Orleans born and bred I thought that that was a nice marriage um but here's the thing and this again I don't know it's 50 50 some people say yes some people say no but here's my thoughts 
when I asked my publisher if they thought they could, you know, encourage New York Barnes and Noble to maybe stock some books, um, they had some concerns that it was a local interest book only and probably wouldn't have uh, much success because places like New York are flooded with authors trying to get their books on shelves all the time. And again, I'm afraid this cheek just saw that as a challenge, um, and it, it took it took me a few days, but I did get uh, I did get to go to New York, uh, New York and uh, I was there in November uh, doing book signing in Barnes and Noble in Princeton. Uh, I did some other things whilst I was there as well, uh, both for writing and on the MS front. But here's the thought: when you have children, um, or when you're stocking libraries, or when you're in classrooms. I think it's important to show children books about everything from everywhere. And when I'm choosing a present uh, of a book for someone, it is never, ever narrowed down to, well, this person is English, so I will need to get them a book that was published in England, or this person is from Athens in Greece, so I'll need to get them a Greek book. It's actually the opposite. Um, I think it's important to show multicultural to educate, to have a little bit of a taste of somewhere they may never get to go or it may actually give them a taste and it may make them want to go later on in life. Yeah, I find that interesting because in my own experiences, as we chase similar, what many would say perhaps were unachievable dreams, mine being to get to Scotland. And when I first went over as a tourist and started my uh, my travel blog, A Glen in Scotland, I have, like you, a second home. I consider already Scotland to be my second home. It is my ancestral home. Texas is my native home. And I found a lot of similarities between the two in their history and the characters who formed the two lands, the state of Texas, and, and founded it as a republic. Um, and so on my blog, when when I'm not in Scotland and not able to write about my adventures in Scotland, I have written uh, pieces where I've compared or blended the two cultures. And that's one of the things that brought me to your book when we first met was that, wow, here's, you know, I live in Louisiana. Here's a neat children's book, but it's Scottish. What's this all about? And it, it, it immediately, the title immediately piqued my curiosity and, and just picked up and ran with it and, and love it. It's on my bookshelf right here beside me now. But I find it interesting, too, that as you've explained, all of the work you did to get the book launched and published um, took place here in the States. And it did not, or it had not until recently caught on in the UK, in Scotland, even though we're talking about the only tartan gator, as you said, in the world. But now you do have news, uh, I think exciting news, about the book in the UK. I, I do indeed, and I'm actually um, tremendously over the moon about this because when I got the bit between my teeth and I, I was going to become a children's author, I pursued it in the in the city in which it was based. So I had the book launch in New Orleans. There was openings and book signing events in Barnes & Noble. Um, I was later invited to the Louisiana Book Festival. The mayor's wife, Cheryl Andrews and uh, Ruby Bridges invited me to attend the fourth annual Louisiana Children's Festival with Later Tartan Gator. These are massive privileges. And I just continued to push and promote the book over there initially because obviously the American-Scottish um, connection is, is wonderful, but it is based in New Orleans, so it seemed like an obvious thing to do. 
now for the last year or so I have been desperately trying to get a UK distributor um, because nobody knows me over here that's not strictly true but you know people have my book but they've got it from Amazon or the book depository they can't go into a shop in the UK and pick up later Tartan Gator they're all in America so I've been battering on at this for a wee while and it's it's very difficult it's very very difficult to get shelf space and we have a, a major book chain um, over here called Waterstones, and it is as big a deal as getting your book into Barnes and Noble in the States. And um, about two weeks ago, I tried again, and I popped my head into the Waterstones in here, and I, I said, "Hi, it's me again." And I had one of my books in my hand, and I said, um, "Would there be any chance that you know you would like to have some copies, and let's see if they sell?" And it happened to be the manager there at the time. And he said, yeah, how many have you got? <laughs> so basically the situation is that there are copies of my book um, at the Air Waterstones. Um, I believe one has sold already. It is currently on the process or in the middle of the process of being keyed into their system because until it's on their system and live, you can't look it up and order it and, and see where it is. But that's about to happen very, very soon. And then they'll be able to go out on the bookshelves. And if they sell, and here's the key, because we're right at a pivotal point, the biggest mountain to climb is getting Waterstones to say yes. So they've said yes. And I'm absolutely delighted. Now the mountain is whether or not they'll sell. And if they sell well enough, then it means that other Waterstones throughout the UK would be interested in stocking some books to see how it goes. And at that stage, it would be extremely easy to get a UK distributor to take on the book. But it's a process. It's certainly a process. Absolutely. And of course, I know you're still very, obviously very heavily involved in, in working this book, um, as you say, and getting it into a UK distributorship. And, and it is available on Amazon.com and Amazon.co.uk, but getting it onto bookshelves where people who walk into a bookstore and read it is what, to me, is what books are all about. But in the music industry, they call them one-hit wonders, guys that have one hit song and then disappear and you never hear from them again. One book doesn't necessarily make a writing career. And I'm hoping you're going to tell me that you have either from other crazy places where story ideas come from, or perhaps from some of those stories you did tell as a nanny, that there is at least one or maybe several more books or, or storylines that are rolling around in your brain. And so is there anything, is there something else coming down the pike? And I have an idea for you. I thought about this last night as I was prepping for this interview. Uh, thinking back, as I said earlier, to that statement of uh, see you later, alligator, you know, after a while, crocodile, you mentioned, you know, tartan gator is the only tartan alligator in the world. I think we need we need a kilted crocodile. Now, I'm just I'm just sharing that with you here for the first time. So you're free to run with it. But I want a royalty. <laughs> there may be logistics involved there with where you'd put your spot in. But yes, I will certainly give that some thought. <laughs> <laughs> but so do you have some other things, other ideas that are in the pipeline we can look forward to? Well, you know, you know yourself with anything, um, if if something becomes public and known about, there's usually a hundred other things that went on beforehand. Um, my first published piece of work was actually a poem that I did, <laughs> strangely enough, called Disability, very cheerful. Um, it was published in an anthology, which was from, uh, it was produced from the Federation of Writers of Scotland. 
And that came out before later, Tartan Gator. Um, just a small poem. It's been used in social care settings as a training tool and an awareness tool. And I used the main character in the poem as a man uh, so that nobody would think it had anything to do with me. There's the naivety uh, way back then. Uh, and of course, looking upon it now, I realise it was completely and utterly cathartic writing and, you know, your angst and frustrations coming out. So, yeah, I've, I've had a poem published. Um, I've also just started doing a little bit of free ran- freelance writing for DC Thompson. Uh, and uh, I've also started a novel and I do various short stories and put them various places to no success so far. But um, I learn everything. I learn a little bit with every sort of knockback or rejection. Um, without giving too much away, I'm really enjoying writing children's stories. And I can't tell you anything about the three uh, that are submitted to publishers just now for consideration. I'm just not going to. No. And that's understandable, but it's good to know there are three that are in in development. And it's interesting to hear you talk about your other writing that I was not aware of, because clearly you have not pigeonholed yourself, as we would say here in the States, as strictly a children's book author. Well, to give you a little insight, um, I was delighted when somebody read my first chapter of my book, which I will tell you the title of. It's one of the longest titles I think would would ever be uh, published. The the presumed uh, title at the moment, what I think it would be, and of course, if it gets picked up by a publishing house, they are perfectly entitled and often do change the title. But my title is, are you ready for this? I'm ready, go ahead. It's The Trials and Tribulations of a Peripatetic Health and Safety Advisor. Now, the stories and the funny things and absurd things that happened to me during my career in health and safety would have you rolling around the floor. Um, you know, including, for instance, you haven't lived until you take a medibum through an airport and go through airport security. Um, so there are a whole host of, oh, just situations, you know, trying to deliver a health and safety training course with uh, two parrots in a giant cage that had Tourette's and were interrupting throughout. Um, and of course, the, the the safety and social care um, course of that day was on autonomy and respect and dignity. And, and I won't fill in the, the shocking uh, words that kept coming up uh, in between my delivery of this course. But there are so many stories um, that are just, I think, quite funny. People think that I make them up, but they actually did happen to me. Um, so I'm putting them together in a collection which would hopefully um, be kind of memoir. And when a very good friend of mine read the first chapter, um, he said that it's very much read like Bill Bryson, believe it or not. And to me, I thought, do you know what? Even if this goes nowhere, for him to read that and say that to me is is just worth its weight in gold. Um, so those kind of little nuggets of gold uh, are successes to me, and I, I thoroughly enjoy the process. Whether I'm going to be a one-hit wonder, well, first of all, Later Tartan Gator has to become a hit first. And if anybody's looking for uh, the book, I have to say that I really find it sad that lots and lots of bookstores are struggling, um, both the independents and, and the chains. So my first protocol would be to ask people to please, please, please ask their local bookshop. 
wherever their local bookshop is um, and after that to, to trymascot.com or the other online um, ways to get books. But to me, writing is not a career. I know this might sound strange. I'm quite involved with uh, trying to raise money for various multiple sclerosis um, charities. And just getting around day to day now and, and doing mundane chores around the house and keeping on top of things is a lot tougher than it used to be. You know, I'm, I, I'm grateful that you've forgotten about the MS because that means I've kind of got back to being Lorraine. But I live with it every day and it, it certainly slows me down. Um, but when I do get some time to sit down and write, I have great fun with it. And to me, the success is actually accepting the situation I'm in just now and being happy uh, that this is my lot and time is precious. And if I get a wee, you know, a wee conversation where somebody says that was absolutely hilarious, that, that reminds me of Bill Bryson. That's a success. That's a success to me. When, when I hook up with people like you online through Facebook uh, which I equally hate and love in, in equal measures, to find out that there's such a thing called a Louisiana Tartan Festival. I mean, from my point of view, I couldn't have made that up. I mean, that was that is like the, the most tailor-made thing for me. You've no idea. Um, these are the successes, Glenn. They really are. Um, they're, they're precious moments. They're, they're good fun. Um, yeah. So I, I, I shy away from the idea that writing is a career and, and perhaps never will be for me. It would be lovely if it does, but um, I'm having good fun. My thanks to my guest and friend, Lorraine Johnston. If you would like to obtain a copy of the book Later Tartan Gator, simply visit your local bookshop and ask for one. Whether your local bookseller is a little shop around the corner or a superstore like Barnes & Noble, asking for the book there helps it to gain valuable shelf space. And if it's not in stock, the seller should be able to order it for you. Or check our website and show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link for ordering direct from the publisher, as well as other helpful links to people and places found in the story. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, so you don't miss any of our future episodes of Under the Tartan Sky. And our upcoming guests include Ginger and Summer, host of the wildly popular Outlander podcast, and Craig Monroe, director of Wallace Bagpipes and Piper for the Red Hot Chili Pipers. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Later, Tartan Gator. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. Learn more on our website at www.glennlmoyer.com. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore Tartan Sky. That's the underscore symbol, Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>